Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? My guest today is Dr. Sarah Sarkis. Sarah is a clinical psychologist and performance coach who specializes in, among other things, how the adaptive unconscious affects decision-making and performance. In our conversation, Sarah and I talk about what the adaptive unconscious is exactly, how it relates to self-sabotaging behavior and early attachment patterns. We also dive into the benefits of cultivating and observing ego, emotional masking, and the differences between therapy and coaching. Enjoy. Sarah Sarkis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Let's dive right in. What is the adaptive unconscious and how is it related to self-sabotage? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is my favorite topic. This is like I'm fast becoming um, the adaptive unconscious girl. So, um, the, uh, so when I was training, I went to an analytic training program and I learned all about Freud's unconscious, which always sort of sounded really interesting to me, but sat a little bit awkwardly. I was like, yeah, I'm not quite grasping all of this, like in my rational linear mind. Um, And then as I became a clinician, it didn't really bear out. But I did consistently see inside of my clients and then, you know, most importantly in my own life, I did see this propensity to kind of like either end up where we swore we'd never be, um, to say we want one thing, but then create in our life something very different, all these sort of tried and true ways. And I was really interested in like, what's behind that? What is happening behind that? So over the years, it led me to find this concept of the adaptive unconscious. Um, and now I'm drawing a total blank on the guy from Harvard that coined it. But if you have show notes, we can put it in there with a link for people. Um, And so around 2002, there was this notion of the adaptive unconscious. And and there's also, if people are interested, tons, like I have a little like series of book primers um, that are just amazing, like really great written books about this. Um, But it turns out that the, so scientists have sort of long estimated that 95% of your brain activity is it originates from unconscious origins and the adaptive unconscious is a way that we in our world we describe that the unconscious is largely adaptive it's largely part of our efficiency exchange and its tentacles are everywhere so it operates on all the sort of tried and true ways that our brain operates like pattern recognition etc and it involves it it, it touches our memory, our learning, our decision-making, our emotional choices, our interpersonal choices. It's everywhere. Like by the time you have a conscious thought, the adaptive unconscious has sort of had its way with you. It's also where all of our implicit biases reside. It's where our trauma goes to be filed, both capital T and lowercase t. And once I found this and started really reading about it, um, it was like totally obvious to me that this was a major 
component of the work that I wanted to do with people was to help create partnerships where the adapt, first of all, that I started to try to train myself to listen for the adaptive unconscious, right? And um, what I've found is that with my clients, like anything that you come into the work wanting to work on is great because it's an entry point. Sure. But it's conscious. And it's the things that you aren't aware of that are operating with profound immunity that actually regulate your day in and day out what we'd call choices, right? Um, And so when I found that and started to really try to you know, inside myself, we were talking before this about how we have like inside stuff going on as shrinks all the time. Um, Inside myself really being like, okay, I'm going to try to listen for the unconscious and to watch for it because it's often in like patterns of behavior. It's in the space in between when you're actually talking. Um, Kind of reading between the lines. Yeah, exactly. And sort of listening for the, the white noise between what they say right? That difference between what we say and what we do in that space where there's like so much meat on the bone for people like us. Um, And it was awesome because people started to really know themselves in this way that they hadn't before because they were constantly dwelling on everything that was conscious to them. Right. So let's back up a second. Clarify for me a little bit like the distinction between how Freud and kind of earlier people thought of the unconscious and ha- this kind of newer idea of the adaptive unconscious. Because I think I think most of us have this sense that like, yeah, your brain's doing a lot of stuff that you're not totally aware of, right? <laughs> Even just basic physiological stuff. It's control. You're not, tr- you're not trying to keep your heart beating, right? Like your brain's doing that. Yeah, you um, never tell yourself to breathe. Right, you don't or have to. Or swallow or blink. Exactly, exactly. So what shifted with this idea of the adaptive unconscious compared to kind of older ideas of the unconscious? Like how how does that, um, what differs there? Well, specifically speaking with Freud, right? Because that's the one that I was sort of trained in the most. And, And there was tons of stuff that I found really useful, like the fact that the unconscious does sort of hold our most primitive attachment styles, right? I think we can all agree with that. It's all in there in the unconscious. None of us really, I mean, I know some people say they do, and they might, but I think they might be screen memories. But who am I? I'm not a memory expert. Most of us don't actually remember outside of pictures and folklore and urban legend, right? We don't remember zero to say four or five, right? And yet it profoundly shapes us. That's all in the unconscious. Um, but what I found is this. So for anybody sort of interested in that arc, the, the, the unconscious that I learned about was almost like an episode of Westworld. It was like you let the grown-ups loose in a lawless world where anything was possible, And you got to see sort of your darkest drives, all your smut, your greed, your, um, all the dark stuff, right? Baser instincts. Your baser instincts. Exactly. And, you know, it gets more complex from there. It's sort of tied to like this concept of the Oedipal thing and the whole thing, right? But we won't deter down too many lanes, but that's sort of how I learned it. But what I kept bumping up against was I was like, Am I just sampling a portion of the population where their unconscious seems much more mundane and 
a lot of it seems super adaptive. I'm sure in your, like we're in the same world and like, don't you sometimes find, you know, people throw this word around like defense mechanisms, defense mechanisms, right? And when you, that's another topic we should tackle. When you really start to take apart what defense mechanisms are, don't you actually find that most of the time people have like 80% adaptive defense mechanisms and there's like 20% that needs some tweaking and updating. Yeah, totally. And just right? to be clear, by adaptive, you mean sort of helpful, like actually helpful. constructive. Right. Constructive. <laughs> they are compensatory behaviors that you developed or behaviors and relationships and patterns that you develop over a lifetime. And for the vast majority of us who are still standing, certainly after this year, right, with time stamp this, we're talking sort of what we think might be the last six to nine months of this pandemic, right? And I think if people haven't left this year, like with looking at themselves and thinking, Jesus, I've done a good job. I'm still standing. Right. I haven't committed crimes or homicide or, right. I'm, I'm carrying on with my life. For those of us with children, like the fact that you're getting up every day and they're having a life and doing their stuff. I mean, these are all wins and they are part and parcel due to both your adaptive unconscious, all of the things inside of you that you aren't even aware of, but they are assets. And your brain has both been designed to do this. Remember, it's an efficiency exchange. And here's what I mean by that. So, Think about that. We absorb, like, between this sentence and this sentence, we just had 11 million pieces of information come at us in that second, both of us. So, you know, that's a lot. And about 30 to 40 of those items make it to consciousness. That's all the adaptive unconscious, taking it all in and not slowing us down at all. So it's super adaptive. Defense mechanisms, same thing. Most of the time, we owe a debt to them. Yeah. I like, you know, one of the, one of the ways I like to think about this, the kind of unconscious versus conscious is I, I ask people to remember, remember how it felt when you first started learning to drive? how you had to think about literally every single thing. There are like a million dials and switches and like which pedal does what and like what are all the rules? What is a yellow light? Yeah, so stressful if you have to pay attention to all that stuff. And that's not even, we're talking about like hundreds of things you have to keep in mind, right? Yes. But you're, when you learn, I mean, literally what you're doing, right, is you're automating tons of that stuff. Your unconscious processes it all for you almost to a scary degree where you, you can drive 20 minutes down the road and kind of get to your destination Oof. and be like, how did that happen? I don't remember doing anything. I just sat in the car and started doing it, right? Yeah, it's amazingly efficient that our brain can automate so much stuff into the adaptive unconscious, which is, which is just another way of saying like your brain does a lot of helpful stuff for you without you having to pay attention consciously. And, and, and you don't even have to be aware of it. It is right. on autopilot, right? Yeah. That's literally what that experience when you get to the destination and you think, wait, I don't really remember driving there. You're on autopilot. One other thing I wanted to add to that, because that's such a great explanation, is that it's, it's automating it and it's taking it in, but it's a loop. So it spits back out to you. It's also simultaneously, it is funneling and collating through hundreds of millions of pieces of data that it's got stored in its memory bank, which is limitless, right? And it is 
providing it back to you so that you can have a concept of your sense of self, so that you can operate in the world in the complex ways that humans do. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing once you start actually thinking about like what your brain kind of does for you without you actually having to, to decide to do it. Totally. So how, how does yeah. this relate to the idea? Something I, I work with a lot um, is this concept of self-sabotage, which, which is kind of fancy, shrinky speak that's made its way into pop culture. But it's basically just, we, you know, we all do things that we don't actually want to do, right? We find ourselves doing things that are, maybe aren't in our best interest as a very loose definition of self-sabotage maybe. So how does, how does that concept relate to the adaptive unconscious? Like what's the relationship there? Yeah, so, such a great question. So, and sabotage is like one of my favorite things to talk about because I think that as we draw like in any um, therapeutic or coaching um, partnership, I think one of the things that's so valuable is when you give someone space in the relationship to really observe themselves in ways that they had not previously, right? Many of us are all are in our default setting. We are on autopilot. That's what we just described. It's happening all the time, right? So most of us, as we mature and our lives get busy, we actually have to sort of consciously carve out time to be mindful to be full of observation, right? Whether it's about self or whatever, right? Um, and the relationship that the adaptive unconscious has with sabotage is that the way that sabotage operates with such profound immunity is that it's totally unconscious. It is tucked and hidden, often sort of in the pockets of our personality that we equate as like a strength or just sort of how we are, right? Um, and, and everybody has, like, you're not screwed up if you have pockets of sabotage. You are human, and therefore you have pockets of sabotage. So everybody has them. And usually, you know, I don't, I often don't talk about sabotage um, in and of itself, but I talk about it when people come in with like, you start observing like, you know, patterns of let's say perfectionism, right? And they think they're really thorough. They think the 75 minutes on a four sentence email or 20 days to contemplate, you know, which is the perfect ba-ba-ba, right? They often see these parts of their personality um, as assets. And like we said, in many realms, they are and that it's operated, right? But underneath it, there are sabotaging elements to it, like you uh, miss opportunities. Like you are, when you are operating from perfectionism, you're actually operating from shame because usually you're going to find a worthiness issue in there. Something about lovableness, good enough, perfect enough. Um, and men and women, I think, express these things very differently. But so normally I don't sort of address sabotage directly, but I will often show in um, patterns, the way somebody orbits in the world, you can very quickly start to show them elements of their behavior that also operate as a sabotaging component. 
Yeah, and that, it sounds like that kind of gets back to our, our idea of looking for kind of like the, the white space or the um, reading between the lines, between the obvious stuff. So how do you, I mean, just on a technical, I mean, you're, you're a, a therapist and a coach. How, what does that look like when you start to, how do you help people start to read between the lines kind of in their own life and behavior? Like what, is, what does that actually yeah. look like? This is my favorite. I'm so glad you asked. None of this is scripted, by the way, to anybody listening, and I'm so glad he asked this question. Okay, so I believe in full transparency, right? So for me and the whoever I'm working with, I think there's nothing more uncomfortable than when somebody who has like levers and widgets and skills with your brain and your mind sort of like keeps their cards like close to that, right? Like it, it's a weird feeling. It's kind of like, okay, this doesn't feel fair. So I'm super transparent and very straightforward. So what I, this is how I do it. And everybody has to find their own way. Over the years, I tried tons of sort of different um, strategies for a long time. I was like acute when I was first trying to learn how, like I was like, this exists. It has to be um, observable and it has to be discoverable. So like, I just must not know how to listen to it. So I would create for myself little tasks. So like one of the things that was really helpful for me, if it's somebody else in our profession and thinking to myself like, oh, this is fun. I kind of want to do this. So one of the things I did for six months, every time I sat with somebody, I primed myself to listen to the word, listen to the word, listen for the word assumption. I assumed, oh, I was, this was an assumption. I listened for mottos life mod. Oh, well, my life mod. There's so much of the unconscious tucked just into those habit patterns, right? Because the assumptions are by nature, you are literally saying, because of the efficiency exchange in my brain, I bypassed actually thinking and critically, logically, coherently, consciously thinking about it. And I am making an assumption. Right. You outsourced right? it. You outsourced <laughs> it. Exactly. Yeah. And so in the beginning, that's how I did it. Now I've evolved. I've sort of been in maybe like a, it's probably been like a seven year love affair with the adaptive unconscious, but acutely we've been going steady for like five years. Official um, for five years. Okay. Yeah. Official for five years. We put it on social media five years ago. <laughs> um, so now what I do is what I do it, I give my clients and everybody for their first appointment gets the same sort of homework. I do it at the end. And what I tell them to do, and I say to them ahead of time, I say, I'm going to give you homework. Um, I'm not wedded to whether or not you do it. I don't care whether or not you do it. I am creating this as an opportunity. It's a ruse for us to observe you as you do it, right? So now you're learning about so much about that. I can see already you're like 100%. You're like, oh my God, yeah, right? right. So, um, I mean, you're just learning so much from them. Some come back and they're like, I did it every day. And it's like, okay, note to self, like that's a relationship with achievement. It's a relationship with perfect. Or some people are like, I couldn't find the time. I couldn't find it. I'm like, it's not lost. You have to create it. It's an action verb. Time isn't lost. Um, but there's all these ways. And then some people, you know, come in with um, sort of guarded, like you can tell they did it, but they're reluctant. So you're, you're learning about their intimacy stuff. So there's just so much data. So I tell them, I don't care whether or not you do it. Here is the task. I would like you between now and the next time we meet 
to more days than not, and I purposely don't give them a number, more days than not, sit in the quiet of your own relationship with yourself for 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening. And I can see already because you and I are getting to see each other, which I love. You can probably tell this is adapted, right, from a John Kabat-Zinn style of mindfulness-based um, stress reduction where it's totally unguided. And you learn so much. People come back and they're like, um, you know, I was sitting there and, you know, I could just see like how much gratitude I have and they'll go on to gratitude. And I'm like, I didn't suggest that you have gratitude, right? Like, okay, interesting. Um, so you just learn all this information. And I say to them right from the start, cause we try to do two things from the start. One is I want to increase your capacity to sit still with yourself unguided because unguided eventually it's like, I joke that it's like the scene from, um, Cape Fear when Robert De Niro's like, come out, come out wherever you are. Like nobody can escape themselves. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the second is that we're going to develop this capacity for an observing ego. So to observe ourself, even for a second, without critique, just observing it, right? Um, so that's how I start. Everything else flows from there. Um, and usually it will take about six consistent, sometimes less if you're extroverted, maybe one or two more if you're introverted and shy or just introverted. But usually an average at about the sixth appointment, some unconscious data is going to emerge loud and clear and it's not subtle. Right. Right. Like you, do, both of us see it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not just you cause you're probably picking up on some themes earlier than that, but my own pattern recognition is yeah. clicking in. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I really like this emphasis on when you talk about giving the homework assignment and that the content of the homework assignment is not all that important. It's irrelevant. Right? Yeah. It's how they approach it. Boom. Right? That's everything. It's, it's, it's sort of the, yeah, the how, not the what. And I tell them ahead of time, but the adaptive unconscious is so pernicious that they cannot dodge it. So even though I've said to them, we're just going to observe you in the process, I don't actually care if you achieve it. They all still come in orbiting around the achievement. They either failed or they succeeded. And by the way, both are just a cage. Yeah. Right. And immediately you just start collecting information. And then you're right. Usually by the sixth appointment, it's obvious. It's like, I'll say, Hey, do you hear that? And they'll be like, uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, this is what I mean by the adaptive unconscious. Now, oftentimes because I'm a shrink and so are you. So, you know, we show up to the house looking for shrink shit, right? right. It's like, so we a lot of, exactly. We hammer everything with nails. So often what I find is I find historical, patterns of attachment hmm. that emerge in adulthood. They have places where they're an asset, often a huge asset. And then they have pockets where they're a liability. And that's what usually I'm seeing emerge. And it's all stems from this relationship we have with ourself, which is why the task is to sit still. So no app, no music, no mantra, no breath. And I love breath, right? Like at another point, we'll talk about how critical breath is in the maintenance of anxiety. I mean, 
Yeah. Okay. Wait a second. I, I want to back up a tiny bit. Talk a little bit about attachment itself. Cause I think a lot of people, um, vaguely kind of have heard of attachment or attachment theory or, um, but what's, what's the kind of, if you've never heard of, um, attachment in the psychological sense, like what, what's your quick elevator explanation for what attachment is? Okay, great. So when we talk about attachment, if you're talking to a shrink and you're talking about attachment, no matter what theory of attachment someone comes from, what they're talking about broadly is this concept that sapiens, um, we, First of all, we, we can't survive without other humans that are usually more grown up than us um, attaching to us and making our, our, meeting our needs. And those needs start with food, but they include physical contact um, and safety. Yep. And they're real primitive in the beginning. We yeah. don't have great eyesight. We're, you know, we're very feral when we're little right? Like we're feral till like my son's 12. He's still got pockets of himself. That's totally feral, right? The process of domestication is a lifelong process. <laughs> and attachment patterns are one of the ways that we become domesticated. We become attached. And these, so from the time it's actually, if we're talking about epigenetics, it's during gestation, but we'll say from birth forward, um, that these attachment patterns are shaping you. They are shaping you and they're laying down sort of the bedrock of your neurobiology as we um, mature toward our, the rest of our life, right? But these acute years, and I'm going to be generous and say zero to 10, these acute years, are they are critical. And your attachment patterns from your earliest days they shape you intimately around layers of self-regulation that we're talking about, right? Deep layers of central nervous system self-regulation, our sense of self, these deep, deep psychological structures that then contribute to who you become as an adult. And, so what is, sorry, sorry to yeah. cut you off, but what, like, what is an attachment pattern exactly? Like, what does that look like? If you, if you were like filming a movie and you said like, oh, there, an attachment pattern like happening, is it something you can observe? Like what, how do we become or not become attached? Like what well, is that? Everybody attaches to something, don't you think? So when we look at everybody attaches to something, we attach to beliefs, we attach to people, we attach to political parties, to religious affiliations, to gender and sexual identities. These are all attachments. But the interpersonal attachment patterns play out throughout our life. So often I think what we both see in our work is once you sort of get a general sketch in your mind of how somebody's earliest attachments were. So let's take something where nobody's at fault. Let's say... Um, you're born and at the age of two, a parent dies, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not even talking about sort of psychological attachment failures, right? Parent is still alive, but not in a child's life, right? Right. You'll see layers of this kind of loss, even though it was pre-conscious. You will see layers of this type of loss in their adult life. You'll see it, you know, I mean... I, I'm not, I'm, this is a hypothetical person. So, you know, I'm making it up. Um, but you will, you will see it. So we see attachment patterns in every attachment that people have. All of your attachments, the whole entire field of codependency in many ways is really looking 
attachment patterns, how these attachment patterns, and then there's books like Attached, right? That's looking at the four attachment styles, right? And those are helpful. They are a construct and they are true, but at our most sort of um, fundamental level, our attachment patterns, we learn through modeling. That is the mechanism through which sapiens learn. We, we watch and see what is happening around us. And all of that shapes us intimately. And it, I, th- I think kind of crucially too, not only do, do we learn you know, how to use a fork by watching our big sister use a fork or our parents, but we learn about ourselves, right? How those, especially early kind of figures in our life relate to us influences how we relate to ourselves. To get back to your exercise about just sit by yourself with yourself for a little while and see what happens. Yep, right? totally. Yeah, that's that phrase, which I love, which is hurt people, hurt people. Mm, yeah, because, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, that's that concept of like, if you were somebody who was deeply hurt as a child, right? Abused, abandoned, neglected. That is the pattern through which you learned how to connect. And so until you undo those patterns, it is often true that we end up hurting people. Yeah. So if you're, if you're bullied by a parent, say you're, you could very end, very likely end up bullying other kids at school because you might learn like, oh, this is how, this makes me feel powerful, confident. Whatever, yep, it's right? both the compensation, right? They feel not powerful at home. They're powerless somewhere else. So it is both a compensation um, and it is a replication. It is a replication. We are constantly revealing in the world what has happened to us. I mean, our the way we orbit in the world is really a reflection of sort of what has shaped us. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty it's it's pretty wild. I know. That's it, why we have the best job on earth. Totally. <laughs> it's really hard to imagine doing doing something else, you know. I'm, I'm sure we could, but <laughs> I, mean, I guess I would have the aptitude for it, but I'm in too deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so let, let's come back to so our our early patterns of attachment, obviously kind of they sort of influence our and, and they become manifest in our adaptive unconscious. Um so how do you let's get more into the specifics of once. So you've had someone in your, in your practice kind of work through this initial exercise um, and you're starting to kind of together looking for these patterns um, of like how they approach, how do they respond to challenging situations? Like just sitting with your own mind, right. And not doing anything. Um, How, what's kind of the next phase in that uh, progression once they kind of get like, Oh yeah. I, I guess I do kind of get a little perfectionistic, like with these sorts of things. What, where do you go next? Like, what's the next phase in that in helping people understand those kind of um, unconscious uh, aspects of their life? Okay. Um, so two things. One is when you said we're observing the unconscious together, I'll sort of m- just make a tweak. While I do tell people like, this is what I'm doing, um, I tell them you have no uh, you have no responsibility in this. Your only task is to come to the each appointment willing to totally show up. 
like just totally be present. I will take, you are paying me to take care of that piece of it, right? Because then they're relieved from having to do that component gotcha. of it, right? Um, and what I always find is this, there's sort of, to me, there's chapters and that's what I call them. Like it, after the sixth appointment, roughly, like we were saying a few minutes ago, I'll always say like, I think we found our first chapter. You know, and usually it's something, I try to make it something that's like kind of global, like maybe it's anger, maybe it's grief, maybe it's um, self-loathing, maybe it's um, rage. I find rage a lot of times. It's sort of masked in other things, right? But like, what, give it, that's great. Give me an example of like how rage can be masked and how it gets unmasked for you in this process of, of working with someone. Like, mm -hmm. what, what would that kind of look like when you talk mm -hmm. about rage being masked? Mm -hmm. So, a lot of times, what I'll find, especially the more high achieving someone is, often you're having, because it takes a tremendous amount of motivational fuel, right? And it gets into this conversation of motivation. We have really endless topics we could do here, but suffice it to say that motivation is, um, there's an internal and an external source of motivation. And um, the internal version, the intrinsic motivation, um, it is you know, it takes a tremendous amount of energy, metabolic energy to achieve a lot in life. And it's usually what I find is fueled by something that has um, some friction to it. On the surface, it looks a certain way. And in the world where we, we live, where multiple realities exist simultaneously, on the one hand, it is that. And on the other hand, it is something else. Um, and what I often find is like spite, anger, rage, revenge. Like somebody, somebody told you in third grade you were going to be zero. Or a parent told you like, you know, an abusive parent that didn't see your gifts um, you know, degraded you and it just sat in there and over time churned, right? So oftentimes we'll find this and especially in that relation, especially when you start getting people to sit with their own relationship with themselves, and you'll often see it with like really just like relentless self-criticism, mm -hmm. right? Um, never enough. You'll see it with greed, kind of never enough like hundreds of millions of dollars and they still have a scarcity fear, right? You're going to find in there, those are pockets that are like, to me, they're like, beep, 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 like ah, we're going straight there. So like, I'm going to ask all kinds of questions about that. Um, but never directly, like, just like I don't say, please do this every day. I say more days than not. So I'm always trying to like go in kind of through the side, ask the because we understand like how the systems are built from the inside out, right? As psychologists, I'm often trying to ask like questions about the supporting systems around it to put the pieces together. I don't want to say, do you feel angry? Because right. the adaptive unconscious is designed to protect you from the things that traumatized you. It is your main kind of stop gauge from being flooded by how life has injured us, right? So it's going to protect you. No, 
no, you know, um, it's going to give you the answer you're looking for, right? So that's one of the things. Um, and what I find are these chapter headings. And, you know, here's the thing I also say is that it's actually true that just the pattern of observing it, like actually seeing it about yourself does the work. Hmm. But we love doing, we just love doing shit. We don't feel like we're doing enough if we're just observing, even though it's like the hardest thing I ever ask of anybody. Right. Um, so I'll give them lots of things. But again, I don't actually care whether or not they do those things. They will accelerate their, um, I see it as reintegration, but we'll call it healing for for people, right? Um, but it does accelerate. And most of mine are behavioral or they are interpersonal or they are um, nutritional. I spend a lot of time like getting into those five, right? So like nutrition and hydration, movement, sleep, human connection, um, and mindfulness, right? In those five areas, like all of my interventions tend to happen right there, right? And then, you know, some people will be like, great, I feel great, like let's, you know, part ways. Most people end up for me kind of staying and another chapter surfaces over time. You can kind of get to it. I think of it as a bullseye and you start at the outer ring and you move inward, gotcha. right? And um, I, that's, an, that's a process of the adaptive unconscious as well. It's a protection mechanism. Um, and it's doing its best to be your ally. Every waking moment and sleeping moment, every moment of your life, it's trying to be your ally. And so the way that it allows access also comes, I think, from a, I guess you have to be trained to, right? This is where we get into some of the nuances of like why having psychological training matters, right? Because you do have to know sort of what not to touch right now, what to let be. Yeah. Um, but I also think it reveals itself in kind of dosed measures. Um, and that's why I think the longer you work with somebody, the more intimate the work becomes because you have greater access to those areas of themselves as they have it to them. To them. They're not keeping it from you before. They right. don't have access to it. Or it's only kind of these fleeting like oh, It's opaque. That. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things I see a lot. More. The longer I do therapy, the more I recognize this pattern of, you know, the thing someone comes in for, the thing they put on their intake sheet as the chief complaint. Um, it's, you know, so I, I specialize in anxiety. So I get a lot of people coming in with panic attacks, right? Um, and the, the more I do this, the more I start to think like, man, it's never about the panic. <laughs> like the panic is a symptom, right? It's, it's so often someone will come in and it's they're having panic attacks. And it's not that that's not a problem. Um, and it is something we definitely want to work on. But the more valuable piece is realizing like, hey, that panic that keeps like coming up, maybe there's a reason that keeps coming up. Maybe something else is kind of going on. And inevitably, eventually, if people kind of stick with it, there's some other thing going on that they that's too opaque and they don't quite see yet right so it's some it's a you know kind of deep uh frustrations or problem in some sort of primary relationship and it's too sensitive to kind of get there and even touch that 
So they kind of come in with some other issue. And as you work through that, you, you can start to kind of open up and get a little bit more clarity on something else that's going on. 100%. 100%. Like whoever's listening, rewind and listen <laughs> to that whole section again. It's never the crime. It's always the cover-up. And the panic is a cover-up. It's a protection and a cover-up. Remember, it wants to protect you from content and data that it believes will either fill in the blank, right? I'm, I'll anthropomorphize it by saying it out loud. And it's not a human process. It's a metabolic process, basically, right? But it is trying to protect you. And, and it's trying to protect you physically. Like literally the physical experience of panic is your body, you know, it's an allostatic response to try to get you balanced again, right? Because you're, you're getting overwhelmed and the same thing psychologically. And I'm, I couldn't agree with you more that um, the, the instinct when something is really uncomfortable is to try to silence it. But actually the suppression model over time has never worked. Usually the suppression model of like, just sort of like distract yourself or avoid it or is, ends up being tied to avoidant patterns and avoidance always results in panic at its furthest expression. It is phobias. And, um, the best remedy is to work in partnership with somebody where you can start to really kind of lean in and like listen carefully to what that's why increasing um well back and back when i was being trained they talked about it as as increasing frustration tolerance but now we talk about it as um psychological flexibility yeah. so being yeah. able to handle discomfort becomes such a critical step in any successful change process. Right. It's interesting too, this kind of brings us back to the, the idea of the adaptive unconscious. Because in a lot of ways, people come in maybe and they, they're not quite sure why they're coming in. They think it's, oh, I'm having panic and I just need some coping skills to stop having so much panic. Um, but really, it's maybe it's, you, it's, there's deeper kind of stuff going on that needs to be addressed. But one of the ways I, the, the adaptive piece comes in, because I think in some ways it's, it's strategic, maybe not on a totally conscious level, but it's almost like people are coming in and they're saying, okay, I, I think there's a lot down here that I need to work on. Um, but let's start with this one particular thing and yeah. let's see how that goes. Like, it's can dosed. you really help me with this? Yes. And that is a very good yeah, and that's a good self-protective mechanism, right? Because yeah. think about it. People are coming to us. I mean, most of the time you're going to work with, certainly if they have classical therapeutic training in any doctoral level training program, they're probably going to have gone to therapy themselves. And if they haven't, it's probably maybe an indication that something, you know, it's like, Somebody should be in therapy to do therapy, right? At least once. But it's incredibly vulnerable. I mean, you're showing up to a stranger. Usually nowadays that you found on the internet and in multiple other domains in your life, if you said, oh, I found this woman, in my case, I found this woman on the internet and uh, I'm going to go start meeting with her and tell her like all of my stuff that I don't talk to anybody else about, like someone would intervene and be like, uh, this is dangerous. Don't do this. Right. But in our case, like we get paid to do this and 
It's incredibly vulnerable. And actually, when we go back to our original thing about just observing how people orbit around the task. So for me, it's, it's whether or not they call or email me as a first appointment. It's I get to observe everything. And so also when people come in and they are overly like give you everything in one appointment, what I observe is that later on down the road, the un, the adaptive unconscious or the unconscious pattern of attachment that we will see together is that there were very poor boundaries in their childhood. The boundaries were violated one way or another repeatedly and because it's actually very adaptive to dose out your information in an appropriate manner as you build trust with someone. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, I want to kind of wrap up here and and talk a little bit more about, um, so you, we've been talking a lot of kind of traditionally therapeutic ideas, things that would come up in psychotherapy, right? Um, But you're also a coach, like you're a performance coach. So you, you work with a lot of executives, athletes, um, coaches, stuff like that. So I just out of curiosity, because that's not, I'm, I'm strictly in the therapy realm. I I don't do any coaching. So out of my own kind of curiosity, how do you know whether coaching or therapy is right for people? Like, do you ever have, do you ever have some kind of like highfalutin kind of executive CEO walk into your room for executive coaching and wants to work on their productivity or something? And you're like, Oh no, (laughs) like, coaching is not what you need. Psychotherapy is what you need Um, or vice versa. Like how does that happen often? And how do you, how do you handle that? I I think it's kind of a fascinating as both therapy and coaching become more kind of well-known and and even kind of acceptable in cult, in kind of popular culture, people are aware of these things. I think it's an underappreciated, people won't talk about, well, how do you know the difference? Like what, what, what's appropriate for what? So mm-hmm. can, can you talk a little bit about that? I think you're Yeah, interested. and there are like critical differences, right? Which are super important to know. Um, you know, look, if they're coming to me in, two, in any of the two states that I'm licensed in, and I think that they actually would benefit from psychotherapy, I just say that to them. I mean, and when you're living in the same state and you're licensed, you can sort of, you know, you're, you can you're licensed in that state. So you have much more flexibility. If I'm working with people remotely, really strictly in executive coaching, what I will often do is refer them to a therapist. Now I find, cause a lot of times they come in for things like exactly like, so it's like performance, it's burnout. burnout yeah. it, exactly. It's um, a lot of times now, one of the most enjoyable things that I'm doing is, um, you know, there's a difference between having a, group of people that work for you and a team. Hmm. One is cohesive. The other are individual people that work toward a goal that's sometimes mutual, right? So I do like a lot of like team building, team cohesion, um, a lot of mindset stuff, uh, motivation, all these kinds of things. Um, If I detect, especially if it feels like that psychological piece is just sort of a block. Like they're just not going to be able to yield the results from executive coaching. I'm the kind of person that like, I think collab- it's all, I think collaboration is key. I think the more people that can 
um, put together, like I work with naturopaths and functional medicine doctors and breath workers. And I refer generously and judiciously when I have a good case because they're really invested in results and I'm invested in them getting what they want from the partnership, right? So a lot of times I'll just say, look, here's my observation. I think when blah, blah, blah happened, you can fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, I think you got, um, it's an injury. It's a hurt. And I think in the truest sense of the word, when we talk about like arrested development, right? I'll say, I think there's a block here. And I think you're probably not going to get the best results from our work together till you look at that, until you poke around with that. And I'm going to recommend somebody that I think you should go work with in your area, right? Because I'll find, you know, I got enough people in my network now that I can usually find somebody, someone, right? right? And then I'll even offer, I'll say, because I'm a shrink and I can talk that language, I'll say, if you sign a waiver, I'll tell them what I think is sort of in the way, like in my language, right? And um, see what you think, see how it works, see how it goes. And most of the time you've built a relationship with somebody You've destigmatized that there's any such thing as being fucked up. That's a myth. Everybody's beautifully flawed um, and uniquely flawed. Um, And, um, you know, most of the time they're like, they appreciate the straightforwardness and they're like, yeah, I totally get it because I can't work outside the state, right? Which I may or may not think that's a silly law and regulation, but no matter, it's a law and a regulation. So a lot of times, and then they'll have like a great therapeutic relationship and the work sort of keeps going and it actually like dovetails beautifully together. Um, My favorite is when they live, you know, I'm in the state of Massachusetts now. My favorite is like when they live in the state of Massachusetts and we kind of have everything, all my skills available to me, um, on the buffet, that's obviously my favorite choice. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So is it, what do you think of this simplification um, when it comes to coaching versus therapy? One of the things you hear is that therapy is about kind of healing injury, whereas coaching is about building strength. What what do you, what do you make of that? Is that like generally kind of on the mark? Does that have major flaws there? Like what what do you think about that kind of heuristic? (laughs) I think it's great, actually. I think it's such a great way to say it. Although, don't you feel like your therapy is also like building strength at the same time, like through healing injury, right? So like there's some nuances. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So there's some nuances like when you're in the field and you kind of know what you're doing in it, you know. But yes, in general, and I would say this too. In therapy, like they're coming to us and first of all, you get a diagnosis and, right. you know, everybody should know that that diagnosis generally follows you. It's sort of on your permanent record. Right. Um, so that's one difference. The second is that oftentimes I find when people are coming to me as a um, psychologist, you are kind of, you're dwelling in pathology. Like they're coming to you saying, something is wrong. Whereas a lot of my executive coaching comes through and like, they're just wanting to work on kind of what's, 
like how to move forward really and how to optimize. Optimize, Yeah. And so there's something fun about that. I I don't think I could do one or the other to the exclusion. Um, I mean, I did therapy to the exclusion for like 15 years, but for the last five years I've been doing this and it's really fun to like dabble. And for a bunch of years, my therapy practice was like 70% and my coaching practice was like 20. But now I really sort of have them kind of 50-50 um, and it's fantastic because you can't, I, I think with with co- the executive coaching, I use a lot of positive psychology stuff. So all of the like Seligman stuff and, um, you know, all the people from positive psychology. And um, there is like maybe kind of a lighter touch, you know, you don't have to go quite as deep in that realm. Um, and sometimes it's enjoyable to be able to offshoot, like uh, offset the heaviness to like somebody else. You're kind of like, okay, well that's like, you know, that's the trauma piece that you, you know, I think you should work on with blood. Right. Um, so it's, it's great. I think they're really, I think therapists, anybody with, um, significant psychological training. I think you come into any kind of consulting, whether it's organizational consulting, because you know people so well and you know systems and group dynamics in particular, um, or whether it's executive coaching one-on-one or you're working with teams. I feel like you have like 15 legs up on um, others who come in with other expertise, right? Because um, you know, there's just no end to how beneficial it is to know about human psychology. Amen. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, this has been awesome. We're, we're kind of out of time. Um, I only covered about 15% of the questions I wanted to ask you. So obviously, we're going to have to get you back on the show. Oh, I would love <laughs> it. This point. has been great. Yeah, awesome. thank you so much. Where um, It's been fascinating. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so um, my website is drdrsarasarkis.com, and I can send you a link to it for the show notes. And there I have a blog. You can sign up for a newsletter. And if you're interested in any of the types of services that we've discussed, you can certainly contact me. If you live in Boston, I'm repopulating my practice after moving from Hawaii. Um, So I have some spaces. And um, also I work... um, a small kind of portion of my work. I work with the flow research collective and Steven Kotler and that team of just like awesome coaches who do flow training. And that's been just a great little, um, experiment that I started doing a few years ago. Um, and so that's flowresearchcollective.com as well. Um, so that's, that, those are my little spot. Oh, and I'm on, you know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all of that jazz, but you can find all that on my website. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.